1: Live from our nation's capital, this
2: is Bloomberg Sound Off. The fundamentals are there for inflation,
3: I think, for a while. We don't necessarily need free money and zero interest rates forever. Washington, at this point, doesn't want to add regulation to Bitcoin. Bloomberg,
2: sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights.
4: Let's look at the student loan debt, which is absolutely staggering. In my
3: view, you can't spend enough on infrastructure. Given the size of fiscal stimulus we've already seen, this seems like a drop in the bucket.
2: Bloomberg, sound on with... Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
5: Thanks for joining us this Wednesday. You made it through the second quarter, which was the worst on record for Bitcoin. It had down some 40% from its peak in April, and Washington is still trying to figure this out with a crypto hearing today in the U.S. House titled America on Fire.
6: Will the crypto frenzy lead to financial independence and early retirement? or financial ruin.
5: We'll talk about the way forward for crypto, whether the government is about to get involved with tech futurist Kathy Hackel, who founded the Futures Intelligence Group. Later, the weight of inflation on the job market, with surging prices eating into wage gains, and a smart piece today from Bloomberg's Katya Dmitrieva, who will talk to you about it straight ahead. Crypto goes to Washington, and no one seems to agree on what to do with it. A hearing today by the House Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations with a menacing-sounding title, America on Fire. It's not as dramatic as it sounds. Fire, in this case, they say, stands for financial independence. Retire early. It sounds happy when you say it. Congressman Al Green of California chairs the subcommittee. He opened with some big questions today.
6: Should there be greater federal oversight and rating agencies to evaluate the risks and performance of these digital assets.
5: Congressman Green is a bit of a skeptic, pointing later to the 07 financial crash and consumers who could be at risk. The committee's ranking member, though, Congressman Tom Emmer, a fan of crypto, says we must first define the currencies or the coins themselves.
3: Questions like what digital assets are a security? What digital assets are a commodity? What digital assets are currency? Answering these questions will keep innovation...
5: But how do you define those when many lawmakers don't fully understand cryptocurrencies or blockchain technology to begin with? Well, in Washington, you invite experts. Today, they called several before the committee, and we've called one, too. Tech futurist Kathy Hackle, CEO, founder of the Futures Intelligence Group, joins us now on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome, Kathy. Good to have you.
7: Happy to be here.
5: The headline question lawmakers and witnesses were trying to answer today is will the crypto frenzy lead to financial independence and early retirement or financial ruin? Is there an actual answer? And I wonder why would it be different for crypto than any other investment?
7: That's a great question. I think, I think it's too early to tell. But if you look at the younger generations like millennials and Gen Z and where they're starting to put their money, they're really thinking about cryptocurrency as an investment for the retirement portfolio. Uh, right, I think there was a statistic that said that half of millennial millionaires have 25% of their wealth in cryptocurrency, uh, and you know I think half a third of them, third of them own NFTs. So I think that it's you know if you look at the younger generation, kind of their you know their their use of digital currencies, whether it is in game or digital currencies on the blockchain, it's something that's accelerating. That I don't think it's slowing down necessarily. So. Uh, you know, does it lead to early retirement to ruin? I think it's early to say, um, but, you know, I think the advice for everyone is everyone tells you, any expert will tell you is, you know, don't don't put anything in it that you, you know, that you're not, um you know, that you that you'll be scared to lose.
3: Huh.
5: That's what young people say about banks, though, Kathy. That's kind of the point, right? <laughs> young people grew up. We'll say young people. Millennials grew up. Gen Z grew mm-hmm. up with banks as bad guys. And saw their parents lose money in 2007. They remember the housing downturn. They remember the collateral damage. And isn't that how we got here in part?
7: Yeah. I mean, I think the younger generations see, you know, the traditional financial institutions as something that, you know, that their parents do. They, you know, they have a certain, like you said, a certain degree of of lack of trust in the, you know, in the traditional financial market. So they're looking at alternative ways to invest their money. Uh, and this is definitely, you know, cryptocurrency and NFTs and everything, you know, that comes with it. It is definitely one of the avenues they're looking at.
5: A lot of talk about volatility. One of the witnesses in the hearing today, Eva Sue from the Congressional Research Service. This is not Coinbase talking. Says, yeah, crypto's volatile. So what? Volatility is
7: not unique to the crypto markets. Last April, the crude oil market went negative. And in February, natural gas markets were incredibly volatile due to to winter storm Uri. And there are products that are offered on
5: CTC regulated exchanges
7: that are available to retail customers that are based on market volatility.
5: But Kathy, we also heard from Representative Brad Sherman, congressman, Democratic congressman from California. Maybe he sounds a little bit more like the millennials' parents here. If one person makes a million dollars and retires at age 45, and nine lose $100,000, uh, Coinbase makes money. The one millionaire goes on uh, TV and says how wonderful it is. And nine others do not retire in dignity, but instead become eligible for Medicaid. So, Kathy Hackle, I guess the point is here, those who are skeptical skeptical about crypto see a lot of the same problems here that you know young people do in banks. It's, it's not all rosy. There's an anonymous portion of this that we heard a lot about terrorists and drug dealers using cryptocurrency i get a sense that this is going to be a very long conversation does, does this actually end in more regulation
7: um, it definitely is a long conversation i think you know I, I believe there will eventually be some type of regulation that might be needed for the market um i do look you know i do a lot of work around non-fungible tokens and mm-hmm. that part of the crypto space which you know in some way helps with you know, authenticity and being able to track goods and know where, you know, who owns what, et cetera. So um, that part of the non-fungible token space I think is really exciting and does help in some ways with the idea of provenance, uh, authenticity, ownership. Uh, and, and that's really, you know, once you get more into the conversations around the metaverse and the business, you know, the future of the internet and everything, that's where it gets really exciting. So it's, it's a conversation I think will keep going. I think people on Capitol Hill, you know, need to you know need to better educate themselves on cryptocurrency, on blockchain, on NFTs, and understand you know where the market's going. Um, you know, to better understand if there is regulation, what makes sense, right? Because there is a lot of opportunity that is coming from this you know Web three you know future of the internet um, industry as well. So you don't you know you don't want to deaccelerate innovation uh, where it is happening, but you know there there probably will be some market corrections.
5: We heard as well today from Peter Van Valkenburg, his director of research at Coin Center, one of the witnesses. And he was pushing back on lawmakers calling for regulation. His point was crypto is already regulated. Here's what he said.
3: The on-ramps and
4: off-ramps where people buy and sell Bitcoins for dollars and safe keep them are heavily regulated. They are state-licensed money transmitters, or else they are chartered banks and trust companies. Before offering any services to Americans, they must prove minimum capital requirements, post bonds and open their doors to yearly examinations.
5: So is this about the trading platforms then? Should trading platforms be regulated or more than Peter was just saying? And and is that the target that regulators should take as as opposed to the currencies themselves?
7: I don't know if I have the answer for that, because if I did, you know, <laughs> that'd be, that would be wonderful. But what I would say is, you know, it, it, it doesn't hurt for Capitol Hill to take a closer look at some of the platforms and some of the practices and everything that's going on. I think it helps educate lawmakers. Um, but, you know, is, there, is is really the solution, you know, regulation in, in its broadest form? Probably not. Um, you know, also if you start to look at the, you know, at the, you know, at the at altcoins and a lot of the things that are happening there, and how volatile, you know, Bitcoin is. I mean, there are reasons to start to look at these and try to be make more formed decisions. Uh, you know, I I do believe that there there there's a push to create a financial innovation caucus on the Hill as well. Uh, related to cryptocurrency. So, you know, things like that, I think, are on the horizon and should benefit lawmakers in educating themselves.
5: I'm going to have to have you go up there, and give them a class uh, based on some of the stuff yeah. that I heard today. But climate change is also a big part of this mm-hmm. conversation. Uh, Kathy, it did come up today. Uh, we heard from Elon Musk on this. My God, what a 24 hours that was. How much of an issue will climate change be? Uh, for the crypto community as we talk about climate change in the infrastructure bill here in Washington and, and so many policy decisions that are surrounded by that?
7: It's definitely a big conversation being had in the crypto community. And I do think that there is goodwill in the crypto community to change things. Uh, you have companies, for example, like the Aria Network that launched today. Uh, they're trying to be carbon negative, You know, trying to view mint NFTs in a sustainable way. Uh, so you already have kind of... More companies trying to offset their carbon footprint uh, when when they're launching NFTs. You know, there's also the conversation around what's called the layer two protocol for Ethereum and how that might help with some of the, you know, some of the gas prices and the environmental impact. So I do think that there is goodwill and there's a lot of energy and a lot of people trying to work. Uh, to solve some of these climate issues Uh, it is still a point of contention it is still a point of conversation that a lot of people are having i do you know from an NFT perspective because that's where i do a lot of my work i would say that not all NFTs are created equal and not all of them have the same kind of carbon footprint
5: you're a futurist tech future how much is the future of the american financial system dependent upon figuring out
6: crypto
7: the U.S. needs to figure out digital currencies, and with that, you know, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, NFTs. Uh, it is it is in some ways part of the future, especially if you look at, like I said, millennials and Gen Z and Gen Alpha, and kind of how, how they just use digital currency in a very natural way in games. Those currencies, like I said, are not on the blockchain, but eventually they graduate into wanting to invest in digital currencies on the blockchain. And I do not see that slowing down.
5: What a great title, Tech Futurist. I don't know how you came up with it. CEO as well of the Futures Intelligence Group, Kathy Hackle. Many thanks for talking with us today on Bloomberg Sound On. Come back and see us.
3: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you.
5: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on
6: Bloomberg Radio.
5: The headline on the Bloomberg terminal, inflation eats at surging U.S. pay with Biden plans at stake. Got my attention this morning, a smart take by Bloomberg's Katya Dmitrieva here in Washington with so many questions about a worker shortage And rising prices happening all at once. Katia, thanks so much for joining us today.
8: Yeah, for sure. Good afternoon.
5: The Dallas Fed president, Roger Kaplan, spoke about the struggle that employers are experiencing in filling jobs in an exclusive interview today with Bloomberg News. Interesting listening to him speak about this time in history.
2: That's what we're hearing uh, across the board can't find workers, can't find workers at 12 to $15 an hour, can't find mid-skill workers, general shortage of workers to the point where many of the contacts I talk to are cutting back operating hours, cutting back production runs. Uh, they are trying to increase comp, they're offering bonuses, they're doing all sorts of things, but there's a lack of supply.
5: And Katia, as you write, that's why many companies from FedEx to Darden restaurants, you can add McDonald's or many others, are hiking wages to attract talent. So, Katya, how much are they hiking and is it actually more than inflation right now?
8: Yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, they're they're hiking a lot more than even $15 an hour. I spoke with the Paycheck CEO who said that even in his own company, this is a company that offers uh financial and payroll advice and services for companies. Even at his company, they're starting at around eighteen dollars an hour now. And fifteen was sort of a conversation they had months ago. And now that's sort of not even enough uh, to entice workers to come in. And it's really across the market and across industries. I think the biggest ones right now are the ones that we're seeing in demand. So restaurants, hotels, anything to do with retail, anything that's reopening after this uh, 16 months or so that we've been completely shuttered. And there just aren't enough workers. So demand is increasing. Workers aren't getting in the door So, of course, you're seeing restaurants limiting hours, limiting seating, um, stores kind of closing certain hours because they can't, they just don't have the people to serve uh, customers. Um, And it's really a mix of of factors, everything from those higher unemployment benefits that are being cut off uh, in September to uh, child care issues to parental care issues. I mean, you name it, there's so much going on. Uh, in terms of churn in the labor market that, that's resulting in this picture we have now.
5: Shortages slow production. You, can be a, you could have a computer chip shortage that, in the case of today, slows production at Ford. You can have a labor shortage that, as you're suggesting, slows production at any number of, of companies in any number of industries. Does that mean wages will keep rising?
8: This is uh, this is sort of the the idea. Yes, that wages will continue rising until those supply constraints ease up. Um, the economists I'm speaking to are seeing that probably in September, October, when some of the workers start reentering the labor force and some of these um, issues get kind of smoothed out, as they say, that people will, for example, um, be able to send kids to school. They can return to the labor market. They can sort of uh, locate the industries they want to be based in now and then rejoin that labor market um, at that point in time, that those wage pressures might start to cool down. But Right now, it's sort of anyone's guess. Um, You know, it depends on your situation, whether you're winning or not, because your wages might be rising, your starting wages rising, but then you're going to the grocery store and you're paying so much more for basics, you know, meat, uh, milk, cheese. You're going to rent a car and then you're refueling that car. All of these things are going up in price. So as one economist I spoke with said, uh, James Knightley at ING, he just said you basically are ending up just treading water at this point in time.
5: And that's what we don't want. You point to the beige book, the most recent beige book from the Fed. I couldn't get over this. Some hourly workers in the Boston area recently saw pay rise thirty percent. That's not sustainable, is it?
8: Yeah. Yeah, there's the beige book is really fun for those anecdotes, you know. It is too. Uh, but there yeah, they are, so I, I highly suggest that um, for some <laughs> afternoon reading. But uh, those kinds of genes are, are in Boston. We had some anecdotes from New York. We had everything from manufacturing to, again, restaurants and retail, these sorts of anecdotes of, of companies. Um, as Kaplan just explained, the kinds of uh, extent uh, that, that companies have to go to to attract workers right now Um and it really is, uh, it really is hard to, to overstate that right now. Um, is it sustainable? Uh, right now, sure. <laughs> right now, companies that, uh, you know, might have, uh, lingering kind of PPP, uh, payments or the remnants sure. of that, they might have high demand, um, right now from customers, but over time that does start to eat at your bottom line, right? Uh, FedEx said that they said they're able to keep it sustained by increasing prices. And that means increases price, uh, increased pricing for you and me when we send packages. So we'll see how sustainable it is into the fall. But so far, um, we are going to just continue to see those kinds of inflationary pressures.
5: Well, if it continues in this direction, as you point out, it could, in fact, have a real impact on plans at the White House, economic policy, and this whole conversation around infrastructure. Really smart stuff. If you haven't read the story, find it on the terminal. Kachi. it's great to have you with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Great work here, and uh, thanks for the insights. Come see us again. Thanks for joining us today on Bloomberg Sound On. Eric Adams may have said it best last week.
4: Please do not judge me on success based on the outcome of this election. My success is the journey.
1: Yes. 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 Yes.
4: yes. 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 This has been an amazing journey. Yeah,
5: that journey just got even more amazing. After the city's elections board issued a new vote tally that included sample ballot images, right around this time yesterday, 135,000 test ballots used to test New York's new ranked choice voting system, and so it was back to the drawing board by the end of the night. Just a screw up, though, nothing to do with ranked choice voting. Though we should note the Adams campaign has filed a lawsuit over this already to, quote, have a judge oversee and review ballots, unquote, inviting the other campaigns to join the effort. And joining us now for perspective is former Manhattan Deputy Borough President Rose pierre Lewis, Chief Operating Officer at NYU's McSilver Institute, a board member on the Committee for Ranked Choice Voting. Rose, welcome. We're also joined by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie sheehan Zeno. Rose, you're a big proponent of ranked choice voting. Are you worried this could give people the wrong idea?
1: Uh, first off, good evening. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks for uh, being here. I'm so excited uh, that New York City, the largest city, to implement ranked choice voting has been uh, six, successful. And keep in mind in 2019, uh, upwards of 73% of New Yorkers voted in support of ranked choice voting, and I think you were right to say at the top of the show uh, that uh, the issue that really is, that were has been the focus of so much discussion over the last couple of days has really been uh, the human error that hurt herp- that happened at the Board of Election, and it's really not about RCV. I think also keep in mind for those who are just tuning into this for the first time is that it's not unusual for lawsuits to be filed in elections. And um, in terms of the timeline that we're looking at in terms of the counting of the affidavit ballots, the time to cure and when we'll get the official verified numbers is identical to what it would have been under the previous system that we used uh, for our elections, So mm-hmm. uh, I think this is a moment where we call for uh, the reforms. And I just saw um, on social media that our majority leader of the Senate, the New York State Senate, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, will be holding hearings uh, to talk about what measures and reforms um, mm-hmm. should be happening in terms of the New York City uh, Board of Elections.
5: So Jeannie, I'm glad you're with us today. Everything Rose just said is true. But sometimes in politics, in fact, a lot of times perception becomes reality. Is is there a concern that this could be confused with problems involving ranked choice voting?
4: I think there is. And that's why conversations like this are so important. And I think you at the top and and Rose just right now said accurately so. This wasn't a problem with ranked choice voting. And I have to say, I'm, uh, you know, one of the people who has been concerned about the system because I thought the confusion would be with voters. uh, You know, looking at the history of the New York City Board of Elections, um, it is not surprising that in this case, the problem was not with voters as far as we know, but with the New York City Board of Elections. But to your Point the perception out there can be that the confusion was with ranked choice voting. So I think it's very important that that story be told. Also, as a fellow New Yorker like Rose, I have to say, Andrea Stork-Cousins is you know one of the people from my area, and she is an incredible leader, and this is a long time coming. New York State has antiquated voting laws that have nothing to do with ranked choice voting going back decades, which have successfully made it so that many people who want to vote cannot. So these changes are necessary, and my hope is that at the back of this, we see the changes necessary in New York State. We talk a lot about states like Texas and Florida in terms of voting. New York State has long been in need of many reforms that have nothing to do with ranked-choice voting.
5: Well, there's a lot here, uh, Rose, and it's it's prompted a big conversation or shined a light maybe on an an old conversation about what to do with the Board of Elections, and I wonder what you would do.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, I would certainly... um... Uh, There's a lot that has been proposed in terms of reforms. Just remember, keep in mind that this is really um, uh, a state-level issue. And so uh, I think the first thing to do with the Board of Elections is to take politics out of the Board of Elections. Uh, As you know, um, uh, the commissioners for the BOE are appointed by the Republican and Democratic county leaders, um, in each of the boroughs. and um, there have been uh, many proposals and, and, and calls for reform that wanted to take not only the politics but make sure that there's the adequate funding and uh, staff that is in, independent of affiliation with party so that we have people uh, who are skilled, trained, have enough resources, Mm -hmm. Uh, to do the work that's necessary to execute uh, our elections. And I just want to also point out that, to clarify, that the issue, again, uh, regarding uh, the tabulation is not with the software or the scanners that were used. This, again, was a human error where a junior staffer uh, inadvertently mixed uh, test ballots with the actual ballots. And uh, at Rank the Vote NYC, Common Cause New York, we had urged the Board of Elections to not reveal. Um
5: Rose Pierre Lewis, Chief Operating yeah. Officer at the McSilver Institute, Board Member for the Committee for Ranked Choice Voting, we thank you.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew
5: on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for spending part of your Wednesday with us on Bloomberg Sound On. The second half ends with the S&P 500 at a record, as you just heard, Charlie. Inflation on the rise and a stubborn labor shortage. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor She Sheehan Zeno, And we're joined now by someone at the center of the debate over economic policy, on Capitol Hill. That's Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia who chairs the House Joint Economic Committee. Congressman, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio.
6: Thank you, Joe, very much. It's good to be with you.
5: Well, it's great to have you. As we take a look at the job market, just to start off here on a new fact sheet from your office and the Joint Economic Committee. It talks about unemployment insurance as a stabilizer of consumption, a key driver of economic growth, and it brings us so what you could argue is part of the grand debate here in Washington, and that's why people are not coming back to work. Now, if you ask some, they'll talk about fear of COVID. If you ask others, they'll talk about a lack of child care. If you ask a lot of Republicans, congressmen, they'll say it's because unemployment insurance is making them richer than they already were. Is that true?
6: Well, you know, uh, the the, the plural of data or plural of anecdotes is not data. I saw a great survey today of thousands of people that showed that You know, as you said, that the two biggest drivers were lack of child care. Actually, the number one was 25% still afraid of COVID. 20% was child care, all the way down, like fifth, 12% said they weren't going to come back because they were making more with the $300. But we did interesting studies comparing the states where the governors have cut off that $300 already, you know, South Dakota, South Carolina, and the states that have kept it in place. And uh, on average, the states that have kept the $300 three hundred hours in place have had faster growth and a faster return of labor force participation. So it's clearly not what's driving it. In any case, as Secretary Yellen says, is gone in sixty days anyway. And everyone will be back on that level playing field.
5: Hmm. We're joined as well by Jeannie Sheehan Zeno Congressman. Do you have a question, Jean?
4: Yeah. Representative Beyer, as chair of the Joint Economic Committee on Infrastructure, I I wanted to get your reaction to the idea that the president pulled back from that the the two infrastructure bills would be tied over the weekend. And then, of course, we've also heard from Speaker of the House that they would move together. Do you think that's going to present any problems keeping Democrats in the House together on these two bills?
6: Well, it is a balance. Um, But I think, you know, the what Joe Biden has done with this infrastructure um, bill. The bipartisan piece is a really major accomplishment. It's the biggest infrastructure bill in in a generation, and we all want it to pass. And we'd love to keep it in in the bipartisan nature and get Republicans to support it. But once we do that, um, as I think Joe Biden has said, um, we'd love to move on to the American family plan, which would be investments in children, the child tax credit permanent, things like that, uh, paid family medical leave. And we don't expect that, sadly, to be bipartisan. If we're going to get that done, we're probably going to have to get it done on so-called reconciliation, 50 votes in the Senate. Um, you know, I know Speaker Pelosi wants to tie them together, but it looked like President Biden says, no, one at a time. And um, maybe if even if they happened the same day, he's interested in not linking them. Uh, by the way, I think it's, in the long run, even the middle run, it's going to be tough for Republicans to say, we just lifted half of the children in poverty out of poverty with the American Rescue Plan. Do we really want to put them back into poverty at the end of the year when it expires? I, I don't think so. I think even Republicans have to join us in that.
5: Congressman, what are you telling your Republican colleagues when it comes to human infrastructure, the child care component, the elder care component, potentially expanding uh, healthcare benefits as part of what would be that other uh, infrastructure bill through reconciliation. These conversations, I I know in public don't go very far, but what are the backroom conversations like? Are you are you actually going to your colleagues to try to convince them of this?
6: Yeah, very much. And I think Joe, the first thing we do is is maybe stop using the word infrastructure and start using the word investment, because what we want, you know, we we struggled through this last decade with you know one and a half to two and a half percent growth. And we all love to see 4%, 4.5% growth. Um, but to do that, we have to build the bridges and the roads and the, and the broadband. But we also have to make sure that the kids are ready to work and that moms are ready to, to get out of the house and back into the labor force. And that people are paid enough money to make it valuable to you know spend whole careers. That investment in human capital is what's going to give us the greatest long-term growth prospects.
4: It- and Representative, I wanted to just ask you, because we're just hearing now that, that uh, they passed it in the House the bill to create the committee to investigate the, the riot. Are you at all concerned that that is going to be seen as a partisan exercise, given it was 222 to 190? And, and and my understanding is just two members of the, of the House, GOP, joined Democrats in that vote. Yeah,
6: I, I think we're going to do our best, Jeannie, not to make it partisan. You know, we, we had... A PERFECTLY BIPARTISAN BILL THAT WE FIRST PASSED OUT OF THE HOUSE AND SENT TO THE SENATE WHEN IT WAS EQUAL MEMBERSHIP, DEMOCRATS AND REPUBLICANS. Um, IT WAS GOING TO BE HAPPENED THIS YEAR. WE WERE ONLY GOING TO FOCUS ON JANUARY 6TH. Um, WE DID NOT WANT IT TO BE JUST A CHANCE to, TO BEAT UP DONALD TRUMP, BUT RATHER TO GET TO THE HEART OF WHAT HAPPENED ON JANUARY 6TH. THAT GOT REJECTED BY THE SENATE, SADLY. SO THIS was OUR ONLY FALLBACK, BECAUSE WE DON'T WANT SOMETHING AS historic and important and tragic as January 6th to go by without anybody looking at what happened and why it happened. And, uh, you know, as as Nancy Pelosi said, I think right now it's going to be eight eight Democrats and seven Republicans. And I know my Democratic friends are not going to try to make this like Benghazi, too. We just want to get to the heart of it, not to be a partisan beat up the other side.
5: Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia, chair of the House Joint Economic Committee. Thanks so much for being with us today. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is breaking news from Bloomberg.
5: Update from New York. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams lead in the New York City mayoral primary. In the latest update from the New York City Board of Elections, he's still in the lead. 31.8% of the votes excluding absentee ballots. That's compared to just over 19% for Catherine Garcia, just over 22% for civil rights lawyer. Maya Wiley. This is just coming into our newsroom and we're joined quickly by Henry Goldman, New York City Hall reporter on the line right now. Henry, we finally got new, new numbers
9: today. That's true and it shows a very similar outcome to the uh, big mistake that was made yesterday. This is a very close race as it unfolds now with the absentee ballots still outstanding.
5: So this doesn't change a lot from what we had yesterday.
9: Well, it changes because now these numbers presumably are correct and the other ones weren't. But in terms of the finding, the spread between the two top candidates, Eric Adams and Catherine Garcia, is uh, 2.2 percentage points. It's very close with uh, 125,000 absentee ballots remaining to be counted under a ranked choice Uh, algorithm Mm
3: -hmm.
9: so it's a very close race right now it sure is is uncertain
5: we mentioned earlier that the adams campaign has filed a lawsuit over this uh what can you tell us about that and and how might that impact the process from here
9: well i haven't really read the lawsuit but i don't think the lawsuit is going to be uh, determinative here Uh, this is a process that's going to unfold the votes will be counted and uh, the proof will be in the final
5: tally. Never a dull moment here. Uh, We appreciate your jumping on the line with us, Henry Goldman, New York City Hall reporter. Jeannie sheehan is with us still, and boy, there's there's a different outcome here at every turn, it seems, uh, Jeannie. We talked about this with regard to rank-choice voting versus human error, but it's... Nice to have real numbers here. And I suspect the Adams campaign is pleased.
4: They should be very pleased. And, and I just go back to yesterday. Imagine the candidate, Eric Adams, having to point out that you have now included about 125,000 votes that weren't there the first night. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, these these campaigns have got to be frustrated. And the Board of Elections in New York City has a lot to answer for at this point.
5: I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, joined by Jeannie Sheehan Zeno, Bloomberg Politics Contributor. How long are we gonna wait? Do you do you have a sense, Jeannie, before this is actually done, before the absentee ballots are in and we have real numbers?
4: I think it's probably going to shouldn't only be a a few days if a a week maybe and 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 if we still had henry on the line i'd love to ask him but with the lawsuits that you mentioned that are coming down the pike it could drag this thing out and of course if you look at it realistically they only have about a hundred thousand plus or minus absentee ballots to add so it's highly unlikely if eric adams lead holds that it would be changed over but of course It could happen statistically. So again, I feel for these campaigns and these candidates. And I go back to my old question. Is this any way to run a Democratic election? Most people think not.
5: Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno, Bloomberg Politics contributor. Thanks as ever and look forward to having you back for your insights on Bloomberg Sound On. As we turn to our last story of this hour, and it was one that broke a short time ago. We've had a lot of breaking news today. Donald Rumsfeld has died. The former defense secretary, a former captain of industry, was 88.
7: As you know, uh, you
5: go to war with the army you have, uh, not the army you might want or wish to
6: have at a later time.
5: We're joined to talk about it quickly with someone who spent a lot of time around Don Rumsfeld as both a journalist and as a member of the George W. Bush administration. That would be Adam Belmar, former ABC News Washington senior producer and former deputy director of White House Communications. Adam, thanks for being here on Bloomberg Radio.
9: Good to be here, Joe.
5: This is a very controversial individual. When you go back to that cut from you go to war with the army you have and consider uh, the period of time that we were in. It was quite an 88 years going from corporate America through government, through a series of administrations. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this news today.
2: Well, indeed, he was a powerful character in everyone's lives. Five years a wartime secretary of defense after after September 11th, 2001, Joe. And you're right. He lived a unique American life. He went to Princeton. He served in the Navy. He served in Congress. He was White House Chief of Staff, and most notably the 13th and 21st United States Secretary of Defense. And every time I saw that man, when I covered him and when I saw him otherwise, he was a powerful and much-heated human, and he just lit up every room he was in. Or, if he didn't want you there, he let you know, Joe, and you got out.
5: (laughs) I'm sure that's true. Uh, You remember the anniversary of the attack on the Pentagon. You were with Don Rumsfeld that day.
2: Yeah, uh, it was one year after, and the perseverance from the second that the attack happened that Don Rumsfeld possessed and demonstrated for everybody who was watching and the response to that terrible attack and what was at the time called the global war on terror culminated one year later with a DOD, a Pentagon, fully restored under his watch. And it was something that really said a lot about Don Rumsfeld, Joe Matthew. He embraced the media. He was a, a superlative communicator. and He brought in the cameras and he showed the world that they were back at full staff at the Pentagon one year after 9-11.
5: He also had some tough things to answer to in our remaining 30 seconds, Adam. He will remain a controversial figure in American
2: government. That was a period of time where I think a lot of Americans look back and say, from torture to Abu Ghraib, Donald Rumsfeld's leg abuse, a checkered one, but he will be
5: missing. Indeed. He runs the advocacy content kitchen now, media production firm, Adam Belmar. Many thanks for shedding some light on this story. Don Rumsfeld was 88. I'm Joe Matthew. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.